Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and I am super duper excited to welcome Tristan Banks on launch day of Ginger Megs. Hello. Hi. I'm going to introduce you though properly. I just wanted to say hello and tell everyone this is the launch episode because I'm super excited, but you've been on the podcast a number of times. And for those People, very few people who haven't encountered you. Let's talk about you first, Tristan. You are a children and teens author, and this is really interesting, the great-great-nephew of Jimmy Banks, creator of Ginger Megs. So your connection to this famous character was really an inspiration for here as a storyteller, so we're going to talk about that. Um, your other books, of course, Two Wolves, The Fall, Detention, have won and been shortlisted for many awards, including the CBCA's Prime Minister Literary Awards, Yabber and Koala and New South Wales and Queensland Literary Awards, you are writer ambassador for literacy charity Room to Read, and you're currently working with producers to develop several books for the screen. This is super exciting too. So we've got a lot to talk about, even though we've talked many times before, Tristan. We have, and then we can get on to you. We can talk through your writing process nah, and stuff. I don't think great. we've got time for that. But <laughs> I've got this beautiful book in my hand, and I've got to say what I loved about this Ginger Megs book is the feel of this book. It's really old school. Did you just love it? Don't you reckon? I yeah. think for, for, like, I love books as objects, and my, my sister was saying to me, is it just me? Am I just weird, or is this just oh, no. a really nice thing to hold? And it's I was beautiful. like, no. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. It's really old school. It's kind of retro. It reminded me a little bit of one of those really fat golden books, you know, that you used to get in the yeah. 80s or 90s. 
So oh, I'm just, I don't remember the fat golden books. I only remember the thin ones. Yeah, I think sometimes they used to have like a special, a special sort okay. of edition with a bunch in there. I could be also imagining that, Tristan, but I feel it like it existed. Be, it's like the best looking book that um I've ever written, even though I had nothing to do with the visual side of it, the illustrations and design. But yeah, I agree. <clears throat> it feels good, huh? It is. And look, you know, I have a Kindle, all that stuff, but there's nothing like picking up a book. And this book, Tristan, it's a special, it's a special book. So let's talk about it. Now, first thing, I saw you on Sunday at the Sydney Writers Festival. You do a great performance, can I say. You just There was so much going on and it is now on my bucket list to put a cake in your face. So yes. beware Thank you. of that. <laughs> well, yeah, when I least expect it, I'm glad we're doing this. Um, remotely mm, as opposed yeah. to in the studio because I might expect you or Adrian Beck to kind of bust out a cake and uh, <laughs> come up behind you. There's someone hiding behind your curtains there, Tristan. That's why he's not on. <laughs> I, I like that people, the, the the cake in the face at the Writers' Fest, um, I like that people kind of got it in slow-mo and then we've got it in multiple angles. It seemed like everyone in the audience was filming it. We loved it. And then Matt Cosgrove did it in this kind of black and white sort of old school. Uh-huh. I really, that was my favourite. It was very kind of Charlie Chaplin or something, it was. wasn't it? It was. Which, I mean, you know what is interesting about that too, Charlie Chaplin, um, I wrote part of the book in this um, apartment in LA that uh, was an ex that Charlie Chaplin used to own, and uh, I was on this Rally Studios lot. Um, I got a I got a sort of grant to to write in this Australians in film um, apartment. I wrote some screen stuff and I wrote some Ginger Meeks. But anyway, so I, I like to think that it's got a little bit of Chaplin in it. I love that. I love that. I love the history of this too. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But just getting back to the festival, can I say it was one of the best festivals I've been to. It was just, you know, the family day particularly. It was just so, the vibe was so good. It was outdoors. It was part indoors. It was something to do all the time. Like it was just had such a great feel about it. I really enjoyed this um, festival this year. Do you love? Did your your eight-year-old enjoy it? He did. He did enjoy it. And uh, actually my six-year-old. So, you know, it's the dream when you have, I actually just had kids so I could take them, you know, had people to take to the theatre and writers festival. So (laughs) I was really hoping they'd be up for it. (laughs) The only reasons. Yeah, it's the only reason. And to make hat parades for Easter. I really enjoy doing that. So, you know, those are really important reasons to have children. I think you should lap it up now because after eight and six, you know, come like 14 and stuff, um, they're a little less open to suggestion on the theatre. But we're trying. Stop crushing me. Stop crushing my dreams, Tristan. So I did say on the way home, you know, so I bought them books and they made badges and Mick Elliott did a portrait of them and we went to your performance and, you know, Jules Faber drawing and Oliver Pomervan on the on the MC and the cake in the face. And I thought, oh, you know, this is really great. And um, so I did say to them on the way home, you know, walking back to the car in the afternoon, you know, what did you rate the day out of 10? And they were thinking about it and they both gave it a hot nine. So... Pretty good. You know, that's I, pretty- I, I was just trying to pull out at all stops. So, do you want an ice cream? Yeah, let's get ice cream. Like, I was just trying to make the day just full of joy. So, next year they'll also come with me. So, you know, it's all yeah. part of the evil plan. You, you think like another ice cream might have given it a 10? <laughs> I think another ice cream would have made that night really awful for me. So, no, we're not going there. Or if they had got to slam the cake in my face, I should have chosen them so they could get us a 10 on the review. Well, that's why we have to slam a cake in your face next time we see you face to face. Okay, it's a deal. Only if they can go back in and uh, re-engineer their review on whatever website they've reviewed. (laughs) So I'm going to carry a cupcake in my bag from now on just in case I run into you. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, is this one of your favourite things to do? Because you and Jules did a great job. And, I mean, he was standing in for Jason Chatfield, who is the um, illustrator of this book, and he did a great job as well. Do you love the part of, you know, your career of going to festivals and connecting with readers and performing? Because you look like you and your element up there. It It is fun. And it's nice with a festival or something like that too when you've got a new book to talk about because you get used to talking about your other books and you know kind of what works and if there are certain jokes that work and you know for most audiences you kind of can feel the rhythm of it which is a great place to get to but I kind of like the fear of doing a festival with a new book because you just never know if you're going to totally bomb and I think that fear drives you to try to come up with stuff and drives you to the desperation of needing to offer for a child to throw a cake at you. (laughs) All else fails. I've got this cake that's going to go in my face. No, it was a great it was a great performance and there were lots of kids in the audience and you know they really engaged because it was this multimedia you know whole host of things to do so it was great you need to do that in a big open space like that it's really good if you can have physical things you know we had the screen which was really good i think that looked good and we had you know readings and i had the history of megs and stuff like that but it's really good if you can have some kind of physical set piece where kids can actually get involved as well yeah absolutely now we're drawing and the technology was great where you could actually see you know jules drawing on that huge screen and kids could copy it was wonderful it was really good now it was a celebration of you know 100th birthday of ginger megs which we're here to talk about and i loved love 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 the story of you know uncle uncle do we call him uncle uncle you know great uncle jimmy Jimmy banks great 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 uncle (laughs) great great uncle jimmy banks like this is an amazing story have you always known this have you always wanted to create a book in sort of honor of your family history tell me how this emerged I'm always surprised and I enjoy it when people haven't heard already because since I was like seven, I've always wanted to tell everyone I met. I my great, great <laughs> uncle was this guy who created this comic strip. And so people in the, you know, in um, in publishing and things when they've gotten in touch, oh, I didn't know this connection. And I'm so, I'm kind of pleased that there are still a couple of people out there who I haven't um, <laughs> raved to about it. Um, yeah, look, I, my my grandmother had this picture on a wall when I was a kid at, at Ginger Meg's original drawing and it inspired me to create my own comic strips and, uh, and I, I think that sort of inspired me to write as well and I've always been a sort of visual writer, like I've always sort of, even if I'm just writing a novel that has no pictures, I always want to be able to see it and I want to be able to paint a picture for the reader in words. And so it's such a treat to write a book that is then so heavily illustrated and in colour and, you know, it's it's a real kind of visual treat. Mm. And I've seen you do that before with your other books. I think it might have been Two Wolves where you had all the caravans um, and looking at, um, you know, how you're going to sort of make that book with all those visual components. I love how you do that, those kind of storyboards. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. And, um, yeah, just in terms of Jimmy Banks, I, I really feel like he might have been one of the inspirations for me becoming a writer because it's a crazy career. It's a crazy thing to think that you could make a living mm. doing, telling stories. And I think that thing of sort of reading uh, the Ginger Megs in the in the newspaper when I was a kid and seeing Banks as Ginger Megs or created by Banks or whatever it said, I think it was sort of, I don't know, it just sent that message to me that this was a thing that you could do. You could do yeah. crazy stuff living and and survive uh 
I love nice. that. And I love that memory of, I used to do this too, you know, you'd open the, the Sunday paper, I think it was, and you'd have that comic pull out, you know, and you'd be reading all the comics on the Sunday. I love doing that as well. So I think this book as well, you know, we're talking about how it sort of looks sort of retro and old school. It just brings back with it nostalgia. And I think, and I don't know why, but I think we just have this desire for nostalgia and to romanticise a simpler time, I think. So I think this book really takes us back to that time. Yeah, that's good. I, I think Meg's was really popular in the sort of 1940s and coming through the Depression. And I'm not really that kind old. Of I was reading more. it a bit later. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but people sort of took from it, I guess, that that escape. Like you say, mm. people are right now, you kind of would like nostalgia, stuff that feels yeah. good, that kind of relaxes you in the, you know, in the crazy world that we've been in for the past year or so. And I think it. I think Megs has always kind of done that, given people an escape. Occasionally, the comic strip has touched on um, real life stuff, um, from you know World War Two to coronavirus to um, bushfires and things. But for the most part, it's been an escape from the real world. And I hope this book does for kids. I hope it's a real feel good book for kids now. Um, there was a guy actually at the Writers' Fest who, when I was checking over people's drawings and seeing who'd done the best drawing of Ginger, a guy leaned over and said. I've been reading Ginger Meeks for 70 years. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Wow. Scary. I, love it. I yeah. hope you like the book. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of pressure. And I was going to ask that, you know, this is kind of a, a tribute, I guess, to your great, great uncle. Did you feel that pressure that you had to live up to this amazing comic strip that's, you know, 100 years old? Yeah, but not in a bad way, I don't think. I didn't feel, um, it wasn't sort of debilitating pressure where I was like, oh, I can't possibly do this. It was more pressure of like, okay, I better spend time on this. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of the idea that um, if you just spend time with the story, that's the, that's the thing that is the barrier between a good story and a great story or a bad story and a good story is just spending time. It takes a lot of time to write good material. This is only 20,000 words, this book, 22,000 words or something. Um, but I spent, you know, a year and a half or two years kind of mucking around with these stories to get them right. I really like that. And I think it was Jack Heath who said that exact same thing the other day. He said, if you spend and do the hours on the manuscript or the book, it will be good. And I love that. It gives everyone a bit of hope, I think. Yeah. And you sort of, you, you just have to trust. I think sometimes when I'm writing my morning pages, my sort of three pages in the morning, I'll sort of write, I'll get in a pattern of writing some kind of mantra around trusting that if I continue to spend time with this story every day, if I spend several hours over this many months or this many years or whatever, this story will come together, even though I don't really think it will right now. <laughs> um, you know, something along those lines. And, and it does, it drives you through and time is the healer of all bad stories to make them good. Oh, I love that. It's going to be my new ringtone. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> now, in your research, you know, you said you spent sort of two years trying to write it or mucking around with it, and then obviously there was research as well. What did you find fascinating or surprising about the research or the stories that you were reading about, you know, your, your great uncle and um, Ginger Megs itself? Um, what did I find surprising? I guess I've always found his life really inspiring. You know, he had this quite a sort of big life. I think he was sort of the highest paid black and white artist in the wow. world or Southern Hemisphere or was it in, you know, outside of America, something like that. 
and you know he hung, hung out with all the sort of media barons of the day the kind of keith murdoch's and uh frank packers and all these characters i guess when when media was just kind of just starting to emerge in australia you know sort of beginning early early uh 20th century and I, I've always, yeah, found his life inspiring. He sort of went to England with Don Bradman when, uh, or with the Australian wow. cricket team, Don Bradman was first starting to play. And, uh, yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> his life um, was sort of an inspiration. And I think just that thing of sort of researching, I, I researched about 20 years ago, I researched a documentary idea around Jimmy Banks, Ginger Meggs and Australian identity and sort of exploring, you know, Ginger Meggs represented um, or was seen as sort of, um, you know, iconic and uh, a sort of typical Aussie or something. And, (laughs) and, you know, obviously that uh, wasn't necessarily right. He didn't necessarily represent all Australians. But, you know, I was sort of exploring, is there something in Ginger Meggs that is representative of all of us, maybe as humans? You know, maybe he's one of those archetypal characters, those kind of heroes with a thousand faces where no matter who you are or where you come from or what your background is, you can see some of you in this this character. Yeah, and I think that would have to be true for, for an iconic character to last, you know, 100 years and still be celebrated and still be relevant. And, you know, I bought the book at the Sydney Writers' Festival and, and my son, who's eight, took it in the back seat and didn't put it down. And then we got home, we're trying to have dinner, and he just kept reading the book and who am I to interrupt someone's reading? And so he, and then he was like, oh, can I tell you what happened in the stories? And he retold the story to me. So it's engaging, you know, eight-year-olds, and I find that amazing that it has really stood the test of time yeah that's so good to hear you say that because i i think the goal was even though there is, is going to be a certain percentage of the population that knows who ginger megs is i don't want to just trade on that i, I really want it to hit the kids now who who are you know like when i go into a school and i'd say oh my great great uncle was this guy and he created this comic strip and um the teachers would be really excited but the kids often would be polite and say okay well that's that's interesting i, I like i'm i'm happy for you but they didn't <laughs> have a kind of working knowledge of ginger yeah. kind of and i thought ah oh, i really want them to so i think that was part of the motivation that that you know a, a kid like yours might get hold of that book and just read it because it's an interesting story aside from all the history yeah, and even though he was at the 100th birthday, it didn't really click because then he said, oh, how did you create this character? And so I said, well, you know, it's 100 years old, this guy. <laughs> so we had the conversation about the history, which fascinated him even more. So, I, you know, he's resonating with um, with little kids, so I love that. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've, you've done, you've, you've read sort of the old Ginger Megs, the original Ginger Megs, and I loved that timeline that you had at the festival showing, you know, how he's physically evolved throughout 100 years. That was really cute. But how did you then sort of make him your own or bring him into the 21st century? And, and what sort of changes did you have to make to, to make him evolve and be relevant now? Well, thankfully, Jason Chatfield, who's the current comic strip artist, he sort of learned from James Kemsley, I think up until the 80s, about 1984, when James Kemsley took over the comic strip, mm-hmm. it was still kind of of the 50s kind of thing. It was still after Jimmy Banks had died in 1952, um, a couple of other artists 
took over. Um, yeah, and then and it and it had it hadn't necessarily evolved with the times. So James Kemsley came in and he yeah he he updated it. So for me it, as an '80s kid, it mm-hmm. felt relevant, and he seemed to sort of use language maybe that I would use. And then I would say Jason Chatfield even more so has has made him a, a sort of contemporary character. So I didn't have to worry too much about that. And I think the combination of that. And what I had learned in writing my uh, Tom Weekly and Knit Boy books about, I don't know, writing stories that are relevant to kids now. And being contemporary doesn't mean that you have to have them tweeting every two seconds <laughs> or Snapchatting or texting or, you know what I mean? They don't necessarily have to be playing Xbox in every chapter or scene. They can just feel like contemporary kids who are, uh, and and I, f- I feel like me reading some of the stories to kids in talks that I do, or reading them to my son before he's go to, before he goes to bed, kind of thing. They'll tell you if it doesn't feel real or if it doesn't feel right, because you know my son would fall asleep and the kids would start fidgeting and things, and you'd just know when you had to tweak something. Mm, oh, I love that. And, yeah, I don't think we need to see Ginger Megs in the book on TikTok or anything. I think, you know, what he's doing is totally fine. He's still relevant. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, a book about a kid watching 10,000 videos in a day isn't, um, isn't as interesting as it could be. <laughs> as doing the stuff, you know, the billy cart and everything. It was, You know, I love that. And I loved hearing um, at the festival remotely, of course, from Jason Chatfield because I just found, you know, his story as an illustrator really interesting as well. I mean, he's based in New York. And so what was your collaboration like? Because I'm really interested when, you know, writers collaborate with illustrators, particularly when you're not in the same, in the same place. How did that work? Yeah, well, I guess at first I was writing, just writing the stories, but I would often have questions for Jason about, you know, is this, you know, would he speak like this? And I'd send him bits and pieces. And also Miranda, who is Jimmy Banks's granddaughter, and she um, controls the rights for Ginger Meg. So I sort of said to them from the beginning, I want to write, you know, I want to write stories that we're all kind of proud of and that you feel fits within the Ginger Meg's universe. And they weren't weren't controlling at all. They were very, you know, gave me lots of freedom to just go out and play and try stuff. But because I guess I've been reading it since I was seven years old, I kind of knew how I felt anyway that I knew how the characters were supposed to be and how they were supposed to sound. And I'd send things off and they'd have a couple of little notes, but um, for the most part, they just kind of let me go. And then I actually wrote some of it, as I was saying in that, that apartment that, that Charlie Chaplin owned at some stage. Mind you, when you go to LA, Charlie Chaplin owned every apartment in LA, so it's not as special. <laughs> but, um, I'm writing this thing and uh, and Jason came to LA and so we met up um, and that was fun. And then we I went to New York to meet some publishers and we, we met up again and one morning I was writing in the New York Public Library because they have these extraordinary, you know, tall ceilings and these amazing kind of vaulted clouds and blue sky and the on these vaulted ceilings, writing in this reading room. And I said to Jason that night, oh, I went to the NYPL and was writing this morning. He said, that's exactly where I go to write Ginger Megs. Oh, wow. Um, so for, for whatever reason, I don't know, I was drawn to this place. And he said that he, you know, often goes there to, to draw the comic strip. I love that. Now, tell me about the story with Miranda. I mean, obviously, relation of yours, but great great granddaughter. I mean, how how did that conversation go? Hey, I want to write Ginger Megs. 
Well, she, rightfully so, is is protective of Ginger and she mm. wants to ensure that, you know, he's around for another 100 years kind of thing. And so I t- contacted her. I had had some contact with her in the past, maybe about the, um, and I'd met her mother and interviewed her mum when I was researching the documentary idea. But I got in touch and I said, look, I really want to do this. I've written a whole bunch of books. I know that you guys might be planning on writing a book already, but I'd love it if you weren't. I'd love you to at least consider. And so she read uh, a few of my books and read Two Wolves and read uh, some Tom Weekly's and stuff. And she got back and said, look, I think, I think we should do this because Jason had wanted to write a book for years, but he's so busy. He's like a stand-up comedian and a TV presenter and he writes for the New Yorker and he does TV commercial, you know, like he's one of those people who only sleeps three hours a day and the rest <laughs> of it gets kind of taking over the world. Um, so he, he kindly was, you know, generous enough because he writes and illustrates it in the newspaper. It was pretty big, I think, of him to allow me into his world. Wow, it just sounds like such a beautiful collaboration of all people being very generous and open. And then, you know, I think that's why you just get this beautiful book, you know, because it started from such a good and wholesome place. I love this story. Uh, I think so. I remember Sophie Hamley, who was my first literary agent and is now a publisher over at Hachette, she said to me, um, she used to talk about book karma, um, my first book, Max Later, Cool Hunter, you know, she, I, I sent her the thing, she took it to the publisher, they loved it and they were like really good. And it, it was just this process that seemed to flow. And she sort of, yeah, she would say it has good book karma. I'd say, oh no, what if no one buys it or whatever? She'd say, <laughs> no, it has good book karma. It's flowed so far, so it's going to go well. But well, I would say. She knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Sometimes it's a struggle though. Like, you know, you know, in writing your book, you've wanted to write this thing for so long and then you doubted yourself and should I? And then we just prodded you in our NaNoWriMo month and then Adrian <laughs> Beck harassing you after NaNoWriMo was done. I don't think that that means, you know, I, I think that that's just the struggle of writing a book and any book is like that. But um, but there is a certain flow in the stuff around it, I think, that can yeah. help thing to to come out and feel whole or feel like it was meant to be somehow yeah no I love that I love that whole thing about the karma and the people coming together to create something because you know as you said you know Jason was quite um generous in doing that but you all did it for the good of this beautiful book you know not of yourselves and I just think that's a beautiful glorious story yeah yeah it felt good yeah now what was was your hard to write I find it I find all writing challenging and difficult when you wake up and you're banging your head against this thing and then editing process and stuff you know there were challenges but overall it was a a pleasant experience so how do you get through the challenges I mean I know you've got your little mantra of like just spend time with the book and it will it will happen what else you got what else you got for us (laughs) Um, I think changing location that I'm writing on a really Mm -hmm. regular basis really helps you know if you're bored sitting where you are you know you need to get up and coffee obviously helps you've discovered the magic <laughs> chocolate which can help you through the day um wine can help later on um yeah healthy also- tips from tristan banks <laughs> yeah, exactly. um cigar no not really i don't really um i just think um i just think for me it's it's kind of jolting my universe priding myself and um trying to look at the story from a different angle like sometimes I'd open up old 
Ginger Meg's comic strips or like online at Go Comics. There, there are all like decades of Ginger Meg strips have been digitized. So you can sort of hit random and it'll throw up one from 1982 and then you hit wow. random and it'll throw up a 97. And then awesome. so I think that was, that was great. It was like having this sort of um, shuffle. You know, Ginger like Meg's that. on shuffle. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Love that that is great. So with all the stories, you know, 100 years of stories, I mean, obviously you did come up with four brand new, beautiful, glorious stories, but how did you do that with all the stuff that's come before? I think I brainstormed a whole bunch of ideas, a lot of a lot which didn't kind of get through, but I, I always do that. If I'm writing short stories like the Tom Weekly books, there might be 10 short stories in each book. I might have 30 short stories on the go yeah. in various stages of development and then I abandon and then I move on to the next one and then I get bored with that. So I move to this and I, and out of that, you know, you sort of, the, the stories that were meant to be kind of emerge from the, uh, from the ashes. Um, I, the four stories that are in there, I think Dead Man's Hill was actually inspired by a piece of animation that I paid, played at the yes. Writers' Festival, which forms the book, part of the book trailer. Um, if anyone wants to have a look at the the book trailer on YouTube. That's great. Um, I loved that. Yeah, so that inspired that inspired the first story, Dead Man's Hill, a Billy Cart Derby um, story. And then uh, there was a story called Lamington Billionaire inspired by my son's um, cupcake empire. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he used to um, make cupcakes for people at lunchtime um, and on a Sunday, and then he'd go out and sell them around the neighbourhood for $4 each. Clever child. Like $50 plus tips. And he was paying himself, we worked out he was paying himself like $25 or $30 an hour basically. Wow. Um, at the age of 12. Yes. Um, yes. So, uh, so that became Lamington Billionaire, where Ginger decides he's going to be a, a you know a, a Lamington entrepreneur. Um, yeah, and then there were oh, actually one other one that one other story came from this line um, that was I think from an old Ginger Meg's comic, which was uh, uh, you're either going to be uh, Ginger's Ginger's principal was talking to him, and he says you're either going to be prime minister one day, Ginger Meg's or you're going to end up in prison, possibly both. And uh, and I really like this idea and I sort of thought, I don't know what this, how the comic strip turned out, but I was sort of like, yeah, what if Ginger only hears the bit about him becoming prime minister? And he's like, oh, I can't believe he thinks that I can be prime minister. And he forgets about the jail bit and then he goes on this kind of maniacal mission to become <laughs> class captain and then he thinks he can become mayor from there and then pretty much from mayor it's like a cakewalk to become prime minister. And so... It's a bit like me. I think I always had those sort of big dreams when I was a kid. I always wanted to be captain of the Australian cricket team and I wanted to, you know, be an actor and I wanted to make movies and I wanted to have, you know, make millions of dollars in my own business. And so I, I, that energy I really kind of have always associated um, with Ginger Megs. Yeah, I love that energy too because it is a real sort of child, childlike energy. And I think as adults, you know, we don't want to lose all of that. Obviously, we have to be realistic sometimes. But I love that energy of possibility and optimism. And, you know, I think as an adult we need to, we need to hang on to that a little bit sometimes. I think so. And Ginger's always been an underdog too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, chances of him pulling these things off are slim but it doesn't kind of dent his optimism it doesn't dent his enthusiasm and even when it eventually doesn't work out he still just kind of has this resilience and he's still like oh but what if and you know he's ready to go again yeah. I really feel like I had that as a kid I didn't necessarily feel that I was someone to whom 
everything came easily. Um, but I really always felt like if I really threw myself at something, then I would have a good shot. And I feel like that is something that people associate with being Australian or, yeah. or, or country. It maybe maybe it rises up out of the out of the ground kind of thing because I, yeah. I feel like um, most Australians would would feel that way that we that we have that resilience or would no, like to think. exactly when you were saying that I'm like that's that's it that's why it's resonated with people for that this long you know it's that optimism it's that Aussie underdog it's the resilience it's the you know the naivety that is is kind of adorable I think that's what resonates because we all kind of want to be like that absolutely yeah uh, yeah I know I do and I sometimes as you get as you you know become an adult and you're like you know and you get serious about things or whatever, I feel like this is a good reminder yes. of the things that we want to be that that kind of beginner's mind that we all want to maintain. And I'd much rather be you know stupidly optimistic than the other way around. So you know if you're a bit naive and you're a bit overly optimistic and a bit enthusiastic, that's better than the other side, right? Yeah, and you know what's cool about hanging out with you and hanging out with um, illustrators and kids writers and stuff, there is that feeling among people for the most part, you know, there's this sort of um, childlike energy, I think, among people where, like I saw, uh, you know, Matt Cosgrove, the illustrator, yeah, he and his wife Eva, who I've known since I was, you know, 18 or something, they've been good friends of me and my wife and, and and they just have this sort of enthusiasm, they have this kind of energy and Gus Gordon as well, another good mate. He, he has that sort of childlike energy about him. And, and maybe um, that's yeah. what the, the vibe was so good at this Writers' Festival on Sunday because maybe that's what it was. It was all this energy just coming out of everybody. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Sometimes at Writers' Festivals we'd go, the children's authors would go along and we'd be sort of down in the naughty corner at one end of the table and then as you'd get further and further up the table, the more and more literary authors until we were sort of entirely separated by about <laughs> 18 people from the real writers <laughs> and the... Uh, but then, you know, Thomas Keneally or whoever might be that that real writer at the head of the table would always sort of come down with that kind of Santa Claus chuckle that he has and sort of, uh, you know, and chat to us and, you know, realise that this was the fun end and... <laughs> Move his chair down that end. Yeah, exactly. But, but exactly. I think that's what's so great about the Writers' Festival that you can, you know, and I, as you well know, I love all that literary stuff as well, but I just get such lost in, you know, this kid stuff as well because it is, it brings so much joy to your life. And when you have kids of your own, you know, you really want to bring that joy back into your life. But I think that's what's so great about these festivals, that there is something for everyone. You can go there on your own and take yourself on a creative date, you know, as Valerie Koo suggests. Um, you can go there with your friends or your partner and you, or you can just take your kids, you know, and let them run wild all day. And when I say run wild, listen to stories by Gus Gordon. This is how we run wild. <laughs> yeah. You know, get a portrait done by Mick Elliott, go and see you guys. This is our running wild. But, you know, it's just such yeah. a great free day. And I think, you know, that's exactly right. It's that energy that's coming out of everyone that's just colliding on the day. <laughs> yeah. Can you you read so much? Is there is there a, a, an adult read and a kids read that you you know that you've come across recently that you really loved? Yeah, I I'm one of those, you know how I'm just stupidly optimistic. I um, I do try and find the joy in everything I read, and I don't sort of do interviews with people unless I sort of find the, the joy in stuff. And um, look, everything by Gus Gordon brings me joy. <laughs> Um, when I saw him um you know it's those moments where you know you become friends with people and then sometimes you still fangirl out a bit and I was like oh my god there's Gus Gordon I just like <laughs> grabbed all of his books on the table and bought them all and said 
Heats, please sign them. So that was. He always has women fainting when they see him. It's just like. But what I was really surprised about, Tristan, I don't know why I was surprised, but when we talked to him, Felice and I, we interviewed him, he's just so literary. You know, he was talking about illustrating in kids' books and then he'd start talking about, you know, the classics and, you know, anyone mentions Oscar Wilde and, you know, I'm in love with them. So, yeah, um, yeah, I just found him really, really fascinating. So that was, you know, my highlight. So anything, I was reading all his his picture books recently. So, and I said, have you got a new book coming out? He's like, oh, not till next year. I'm like, do you want to chat anyway soon? (laughs) So we might just have a part two because I think Felice and um, Gus, they they met up in Paris accidentally years ago. And so they just went on this like nostalgic Paris trip. I was totally the third wheel, but I was just happy to be there. I think we've had this discussion where they put up the photo of them in Paris and I was like, <laughs> what you got, what are you talking about? And then I got them and Gus photoshopped me into the photo. And then weren't you, didn't you, didn't they photoshop me out and put you in or something? Oh, or I photoshopped you- myself in. I just pushed in and went, oh, look, I was there too. <laughs> And that's what that's what the joy is about, you know, bringing that joy in. Um, you asked me a question. See, I'm bad at I'm bad at oh, being on the other yeah, side of this. Of us, I agree. I, I've been lucky enough to um, go to Gus's studio and sort of he'll be working on a picture book and he'll sort of take me through, through the um, the pages, the spreads. Yep. They're up on the wall and and uh, and just to you know, or he'll read me an early draft or something like that. And I love I love that process because I'm yeah. obsessed with process so that idea of being um, invited into someone's process while it's happening is exciting to me he's got those um videos on instagram where he takes you for a tour on his studio and i was like oh my god (laughs) i love those videos he does on instagram because his studio it's not only immaculate but it's just this beautiful place where you can you know no creativity is going to happen so yeah i love that he just hires that place just to make other writers feel bad that he's got this (laughs) It is basically just, <laughs> just he just to sell tickets like videos a year and then just feeds them out over the year and he actually lives in a in a shack. <laughs> I think he should sell tickets. You know, like fifteen bucks. Come and check out my studio because <laughs> I would be there for sure. <laughs> on my own Instagram pictures of his studio. <laughs> yeah. And um, look, I'm reading lots of books at the moment, but um, I think the one that, you know, because I'm writing to crime fiction at the moment, I was just really impressed with Candace's sort of epic The Chase. I just think that uh-huh. was just such an epic. Um, and I really liked, you know, I like watching the journey of authors as well. You know, obviously all her books are incredible, but there was just such a leap from, um, you know, her work to this one. It's like, wow, like she's... You know, she's blockbuster lady now. <laughs> okay, I haven't um, I haven't read it actually. I don't think I've read her stuff. I've I've been lucky enough to meet her at one of those dinners. I was saying, and she's so entertaining. Oh, and she is. Have you into? I like how you're allowed to just call her Candace too. Just for the listeners, um, it's actually Candace Fox, but you know, Danny's on a first name basis. Well, we, we do a live. Oh, can I tell you, uh, my phone to an epic fail. So we did this live stream, and thank goodness that um, you know, Adrian was there, and Ben Hobson was there, and Adrian was doing all the tech because, you know, I do podcasts a lot, but that particular night, my internet decided not to work at all, right? And so I was sort of popping in, popping out. And it was a live stream, right? So there was no editing, no editing going on. So I sort of pop in and pop out and pop in and pop out. And luckily, you know, Ben and Adrian just saved the day because I was just messaging and just going, you guys just have to ask the questions. And if I appear, I'll quickly ask a question before my internet dies again. Oh, man. And so, look, I don't know. if I was devastated, obviously, because I, I love Candace Fox. Um 
But I watched it back, you know, and you watch something back and you're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. It was actually really good because they, the three of them were just amazing. And then this was me just like popping in every now and then. But I don't think you could tell. I don't know, maybe you could, but anyway. <laughs> well, now you've revealed it, you can. Anyway. <laughs> my well, greatest I think fail. <laughs> you've built this kind of words and nerds universe, similar to a Marvel universe. Um, <laughs> yes, very it. similar. Biting Adrian Beck and Ben Thompson. <laughs> Um, into this world. Oh, I like it. You're so, you know, you've sort of built this thing that's flexible and allows people to kind of, um, you know, bolt into it and bolt things onto it and, 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 and it all works. It still feels like it's kind of of one piece. Yeah, so, yeah. No, I, I like you? that you say that. I just sometimes get sick of my own voice, really, because I edit everything. I'm like, oh, my goodness, please, someone do a takeover so I don't have to edit my own voice again. But, yeah, you are, I really like having just people jump in whenever they want because I don't think I'll ever meet anyone as obsessive as me about the podcast, which is fair. Um, so I like when people can just jump in and out whenever they feel like, you know, there's no pressure, there's no commitment. If you want to jump in, jump in. If you're busy, that's cool. So I kind of like that that relaxed vibe. Yeah. So I don't want to have to twist anyone's arm to come on. I want you to be excited to be here, you know, not looking at your watch. Stop looking at your watch, Tristan. I'm not. I don't even wear a watch. Look. <laughs> no, I'm excited. <laughs> I always love speaking to you because it's funny when you, you speak to someone so often and you think, oh, we're going to have new things to talk about, and you always do. You always go on new paths yeah. and new tangents. So I love that. Um, yeah. So tell us. I know you've told us a little bit about these stories and, you know, I love the Lamington one. I particularly love the Lamington one because that's inspired by your son, you know, which then goes back to the whole family history, etc. So I love yeah. that. But was that one of the most fun ones that you wrote out of the four or which one did you have most fun writing? I think so. I think that one sort of flowed um, easily because it came from, you know, my life at that time. Yeah. time. <clears throat> I've also lived in a town for a long time that has actually has a billy cart derby down the main street every yes. year. And so, um, you know, this was good material because I've, you know, that. helped build billy carts and, you know, hundreds of kids come from all around to ride these billy carts down the main street. And some of them are just made out of old bits of wood kind of knocked together on that morning. And then other nostalgia. things. Nostalgia. This is nostalgia. Imagine now you'd have to make them wear helmets and you'd have to have crash test dummies and stuff. You do. I mean, they do. They do. I mean, it's happening now kind of thing. I'm not saying this is when I was a kid. I'm saying as an adult. Oh, um, right, right. Yeah. Over the, over just recent years. Awesome. Um, they, we still have this billy cart derby every year. And so, you know, kids now are into that. Um, and, yeah, I, I so that was a fun one. And then another one was um, Father's Day, which was um, a sort of doomed camping adventure. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, I'm pretty bad at camping. Like I love <laughs> stories about um, survival. And I love Hatchet and I love My Side of the Mountain and I love Into the Wild and I love um, all of those sort of stories. But uh, Jack London sort of stuff I'm, I'm obsessed with, but um, I'm terrible at camping. Like what makes you bad at camping? What makes me bad? Well, because I think if you're good at camping, like in, you know, modern camp, you're, you're organised, you're very organised and you're painstaking in the preparation and you take all the things you need and you okay. really think through what's going to happen. I like to just throw everything I have into the car jam as much stuff in as I possibly can, grab as many clothes as I can, <laughs> randomly kind of raid the kitchen for spatulas and things. And my wife just stands there just kind of shaking her head going, oh, no, 
Oh, this is it. And she's she's always so glad glad that she's not coming because she would just lose it, not you know being that unprepared. Um, so Ginger's dad is terrible at camping. You know, he has this dream that he's gonna you know he's gonna be great and he's gonna show Ginger the great outdoors and, and survival skills and stuff like that. But you know, you know, the reader knows from the beginning that this is doomed, and that's one thing I always sort of try to do too is build in that gap for the reader where. It might say one thing, um, but the reader knows something else. Yeah. I think Morris Glassman is the is the genius at this, um, and I yeah. So so I think Father's Day was one you know that came from personal experience, and that I you know was lots of fun to write. But I think you're right. Camping is sort of you know you romanticise camping. You think you know you're going to have a bonfire and you're going to sing songs and you're going to you know barbecue marshmallows. But then the actual camping, it's kind of annoying, right? <laughs> You're uncomfortable, yeah. you're itchy, you're getting bitten by things. Yeah, no, it always rains and the tent. Nowhere to go to the bathroom. <laughs> the airbed never stays up never for stays any length up. of time. Someone always leaves the tent thing open, the, the zip open for the mozzies get in. Yeah, Australian terrible. camping. <laughs> and I'm sure many people love it, but I always find the idea of camping is so much better than when I show up to camping. I'm like, oh, this isn't yeah. what was in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Me and no, my son in recent years have had this technique where we where we do this sort of charade of putting camping gear in the back of the car <laughs> but then, and then we'll drive down the coast, you know, for an hour and a half or something like that. We'll get to the campground, we'll do the fire and stuff like that. But then we go, could you be bothered like sleeping in the tent? Go nut. And so we get in the front seats of the car, wind them back and then go, night. I thought you were going to say you, you went and found a hotel. <laughs> That's right. No, we're not that fancy. We 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 want to rough it. It's just we want to rough it after you know, kind of watching um, liar liar on uh, Netflix on the phone or something in your comfortable car seats with a blanket. No, I like it. I like it. I could get on board with that. Yeah. Now I've asked you a million times. That's how many times you've been on the podcast. And I love every time you're on. I've asked you why you write. And I'm thinking, well, what am I supposed to ask you now? I know that. So what keeps you writing, Tristan? Uh, that's a really good question, actually. I sometimes ask myself that. I sort of think, well, it's, it's not to publish a book now. You know what I mean? We've done that one. And then it's not just to publish another book. I'm not sort of trying to publish as many books as I can in my life necessarily. Um, I think it's to try to write the better book you know, a better book than I've ever written before. Like I feel as though Ginger Meggs was me trying to bring together everything I've learned on writing, you know, funny stories for primary schoolers and try to make this the best of those of those stories and, you know, the funniest. And um, and I worked really hard on the book. So I, I think that's good. I like being at that place where I'm sort of not just doing it to try to, um, you know, uh, I think there's that excitement of getting your first book published and yours will no doubt be published in the very near future and you'll feel that excitement and then you get the book in your hand and you're like, what? They actually printed this thing. Um, you know, it's so, <laughs> all those steps are so exciting. And then, you know, the first school that I ever went to and the first festival that I ever went to and the writers that I've admired that I've been able to meet and, um, you know, getting to travel a bit overseas with with writing. And, you know, it's crazy the fun stuff you get to do just by sitting alone at home, you know, tapping away on a laptop or writing in a notebook. 
So now I sort of think, okay, well, what what is it? That, is it just to continue to do that? But I really think it's to to try to write the best book I possibly can and to not think that um, my best stuff's behind me. You know, I've still got potentially another half of my life to to go and there's no reason why I can't continue to write for a good portion of that. So, yeah, I just want to I just want to keep getting better. I want to keep learning. I want to stay hungry. I want to have beginner's mind. I want to keep asking questions, stay curious, um, you know, all of those things. I love that. And uh optimistic joyfully optimistic and enthusiastic yes participating <laughs> joyfully in the sorrows of the world <laughs> that's it there's no other way to be I reckon and sometimes I look at you know on Sunday my Instagram feed I've got a little bit excited I thought maybe I shouldn't have posted 11 photos one after the other and then I thought you know what I'm enthusiastic about books who cares <laughs> yeah exactly and I loved all 11 of them <laughs> Especially the one with your cake face. That's actually one of my favourites. You know, the Ginger Meggs movie that they made in 1982, I found a picture the other day from that movie and they 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 had, I can't quite remember because I haven't seen it that recently, but I think they had a big food fight and he has cream all over his face. And it's not not unlike the photo uh, that that you took. Oh, that is cool. I love it. Just channeling it everywhere. Exactly. (laughs) As usual, Tristan, I have loved chatting with you. I always, you know, learn new things and find you so interesting and I love your advice on writing and this book is just glorious. I'm holding it again just because I really like to hold it. It's really nice. (laughs) 100 years, launch day. Let's let's take a photo where we're holding the book like we just adore it. Thank you so much for your time again, Tristan. It was lovely to see you on Sunday. And this book, I'm sure, is going to um, not look as beautiful as this in the next few days once my kids keep yeah. putting their hands on it, which I guess yeah. is what they're meant to be doing. So I'll let yeah, them know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you. Oh, thanks a lot. Oh, yeah, I love chatting to you too. That bubbling enthusiasm.